This is the fifth sermon in our series on Romans. Our theme, of course, of the book of Romans is justification by faith. And we might summarize it by saying bad news, good news. The bad news is we cannot earn our salvation. I like to compare it to trying to swim the Atlantic. No matter how strong a swimmer you are, you might get farther ashore. You're not going to make it. We can't earn our salvation. But the good news is we don't have to. That God's offered us to, it does to us as a free gift. So that's where we've gotten so far, but that leaves an issue. If we don't need to do good works to earn our salvation, what exactly should we be doing? What's the plan? We've been justified, we've been saved, what's the plan? Is there a way forward? Is that meaningful? Is there a way forward? We'll find out today that Paul says the answer is, oh yes, there's a way forward. God gave himself as a gift to us, and we can respond to that gift by offering ourselves. We have a gift to give back to God, perhaps God's greatest gift to us. This is why our theme this morning is, I appeal, it's on the bulletin cover, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This self-offering is the whole heart of the Christian life. But let's back up a second. There are two mistakes that easily stop us from living this life. So let's get those out of the way right away. The first mistake is a lot of us tend to see our faith in essentially defensive terms. We turn to the Lord, we receive salvation, we call Christ into our hearts, we receive the Lord, we receive salvation. But the plan, basically all we have in front of us is, I guess the biggest thing I do is not fall. Right, that's really my goal now is there's nothing, I've got everything. Uh, basically, my, all I can hope for is to make sure I don't fall. So, should I do something with the mic here, Chuck? Okay. So what this makes me think of is, you know how there are spiritual fads? We can all think of them that go through, like your managerial fads or spiritual fads. There was a really strange spiritual fad at the, at the turning point of the third and fourth centuries. You never believe this. I'm not making this up. There were saints called stylites. That comes from the Greek word for pillar, you know, like a column in a building. And what they would do is they'd have a standalone pillar and they would sit on the top of it or stand on the top of it and pray and give advice. That's it. And the most famous of the style, like, by the way, as with the bishop here, we're not recommending this as a fad here at Raz. Okay, so if you're inclined that way, we'll think of something else. But Simeon Stalites, he's famous for having that, he's almost 40 years, he's 37 years on a pillar near Aleppo, they still have the pillar. He started out on a nine-foot pillar, but when people still bugged him, they put him up on a 50-foot pillar, which you can still see today near Aleppo. And the reason I think of that is, isn't that a beautiful image of how we often see our life after our salvation, after we turn to the Lord? Again, if you're on a pillar, the first rule is don't fall off. But there's not really any place to go, is there? Don't fall off, but there's really no place to go. And I think a lot of us look upon our Christian life that defensively. Whatever I do, don't sin, don't fall from this grace. But there really is no forward plan. So what happens here is it reminds us that the Lord speaks harshly of this. Remember the parable when he talks about the servants who get the talents? And he talks about two of the three servants go out and invest and, and, and do good things with them. But the third servant was afraid of doing anything wrong. So it says... Uh, so what he did is he basically buried it in the backyard. 
So it says when the servants come and say what they've done, he was afraid of getting anything wrong, so he hadn't lost the talent, so he came to the master and said, it says here, he also who received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground, and here it is, you have what's yours. Was the Lord's reaction to that, well done, good and faithful servant? No, it's actually a very harsh reaction. The master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You wicked and slothful servant. So clearly, the Christian life is not purely defensive. right? It's more, not just about not falling off the pillar, it's about having some place to go. Second mistake is some people trying to honor God believe that the whole notion of good works is mistaken, it's presumptuous, dangerous. Well, this would be news to St. Paul, who is the champion of justification by faith. In Ephesians 2, he tells us, chapter, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created for good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James says, faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. You see, some people who don't really read the, the epistle of James and just talk about it, don't realize they have this idea of faith versus works. James' point is, it's living faith versus dead faith. The works aren't the thing. Without faith, faith without works is like a body without breath. So his point is, you know, faith without works, James says, it's dead. And Jesus himself, talking about this, he uses the word rewards in the Sermon on the Mount nine times. Remember in things like he says, uh, for example, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And I could go on and on in the Sermon on the Mount. So there's nothing wrong about good works per se. We can't earn our salvation, but there's nothing wrong about good works. So what's the way forward? That's what Paul tells us today in our verse. I appeal you, what we do is we take what is given us and we offer it back to God as a free gift. God has given us the gift we give him. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does that look like? It's a life filled with good works, not to earn salvation, but purely for the glory of God. No other purpose. Matthew 5, it says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's not about us, it's not about earning, it's about giving glory to God. That's why we have that wonderful psalm, Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Well, we talked about those mistakes, but we say, wait a second, talking about giving a gift to God, even the gift of our lives, what possible gift could have meaning to God, any real meaning to God? Come on already. What gifts could have meaning to God? Now, I'm going to do something completely, you're going to think I'm a pod person. This is so not me. I have brought a prop. <laughs> it's a chess set. And this is a pretty average, you know, it's, it's a nice little chess set. It came from, they used to call it cross-cultural graphs. I think it's now called 10,000 Villages. And it's nothing remarkable. It's, it's nice, but it's nothing remarkable. But I keep it, and I have a special place where I keep the treasures, the great memory. The diary my mother kept during the war, my father's war member. I keep a special place where the real treasures of my life are. This is in that place. 
Now, it's not that I love playing chess that much. It's why would this particular chess set be in that place? Here's what happened. We were once at, you know, again, at 10,000 villages. And I was looking at it, and my son was about eight years old then. And he saw me looking at it. I had looked at it for a while. I came back. I didn't buy it. And he went back home, and he told my wife, he said, I want Dad to have that chess set. He saved for months to buy that set. Months on his allowance. And then he gave it to me. Was that generosity? Now, if we analyzed it philosophically, I know we have professional philosophers here, we might say, okay, ultimately he didn't give me anything, did he? Because I gave him the allowance money he used to buy it for me, so that's not true. It's not like he gave me anything. And in human terms, he was infinitely in my debt. His, my, his mother's in my debt. We had paid every bill. We had raised him, given him life. Of course, in that sense, he hadn't given us anything. But nonetheless, that gift was beautiful. It was truly a gift. It was truly genuine. That the, my gift to him, that allowance, didn't make his gift meaningless. It made his gift possible the joy of any parent. Now, if somebody came up to me and heard this story and said, wow, what a nice boy, could you imagine my taking umbrage and saying, what are you praising him for? Think about me. I'm going to get, <laughs> well, some, you know, you, the attitude of any parent would be, that's my son, I'm so proud of him. Look what he did. This is the way it is with God. You know, God, when we do these things, doesn't say, what are you talking about? God takes pride when we respond to his gift. His greatest gift is to give us the power to give something back to him. It's genuine. It is real. That's the greatest gift of God, the power to be a giver like God. That's the gift. I'm going to put this back. Forget I have ever used a prop, okay? <laughs> it's our little secret. Okay. So what is the way forward? The way forward is, at her resurrection, we talk about a sanctuary of transformation. That is the way forward in the Christian life. And what does it look like? Well, we know that we are created in the image and likeness of God. We hear that in the book of Genesis. In the very first chapter, we're created in the image and likeness of God. What's God? What's he like? John, 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love. Where do we see that most clearly? Where do we see that love? And we're told we see that basically in Christ's complete self-giving on the cross. Remember in John's Gospel when it talks about now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, it doesn't mean his resurrection, it means his death on the cross. What, because glory means where do we something? We talk about a, a sports figure or something, we talk about top of their game, the best game to see them at. So glory means where do we see something most what it really is? And we say if you want to see what God looks like, the greatest time in all history to see what God of love looks like is on the cross. We'll never get another vision of that, what complete self-giving love looks like. That's it. That was the moment of his glory. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now Paul teaches that the work of the Holy Spirit is to transform us into that very image. That's the image. We had that in our, our first hymn today. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, that's Jesus on the cross, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So this is what Paul is telling us today. Give yourselves as a living sacrifice and offering to God. 
This is it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to pretend, just as Jesus presented himself on the cross, for us to present ourselves, now thanks to that gift of God, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, because of our justification, which is your spiritual worship. On a side note, I should tell you that I take my spirituality comes with our great traditions in the church, like the Ignatian tradition and the Franciscan, etc. For Barbara and me, it's the Carmelite tradition. And Carmelites, one thing that surprises people sometimes, they'll look in a Carmelite cell where a Carmelite lives, and they'll find a crucifix, but they also find a plain cross. Why? Because that's our cross. That's where we give back to God. The crucifixion is what God gives to us. The cross is reminding us, this is our opportunity, thanks to that gift, to give ourselves back to God. That's why it's a plain cross. It's our cross. Jesus said, anyone who follows me has to take up his cross and follow, daily and follow me, Luke 9, 23. God's gift in mind. Now, how do these good works differ from the good works of justification by works? Oh, completely. What the critical element is, is love. Critical element. Paul says, you know, he talks about all sorts of nifty stuff. He says, if I give away everything I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have nothing, love, not, have not love, I gain nothing. I've been in a situation as a priest here of somebody being across the table from me having trouble with giving. There have, that was a particular challenge they had. I remember at one point I felt by the Lord saying, you know, they said, what should I do? And I said, I probably wouldn't give. God doesn't need our stuff. He wants our heart. You know, that's a, we have a bigger issue. The issue isn't the money. The issue is a heart that's holding back. God wants you as evidenced by that money, not the money. It's a heart issue. That's what this is about. Mother Teresa likes, says it's, likes to say it's not like to say it's not what we do, it's the love we put in the doing. This is so. What's at the very core of love? How do we know love? Because we use the word in human reactions. With God, it's a fundamental difference. You see, all human love is transactional. We have it means basically, I give you something and you give me something. Friends, they laugh at my jokes, I laugh at their jokes. They like me, I like them. We get some. We feel refreshed and nourished. We're getting something. We're giving something. We talk about an exchange transaction. If a friend starts taking more than they're giving, we'll give them some slack for a while, but ultimately, we'll probably move on. All human, even love, you know, is transactional. That's where God is completely different. That's why talk, God talks about perfect love. Look in, in the Sermon on the Mount, what he says. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, who, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anybody else? Do not even the Gentiles do that? You have to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's giving in honestly, not looking for anything back. Now, how can we possibly do that? We can't in human terms. It's impossible. But here's the thing, what humility is, the queen of the virtues, as the saint said, is humility doesn't mean looking down on ourselves. It's a reality, humus is a Latin word for ground. It basically means having our feet on the ground spiritually. So it means we naturally grow up and think we're the center of the universe. Our whole perspective is from me, and we evaluate everyone that way. Remember where it talks about we will reign with Christ? God is taking us up into those places so we see the world as God sees it. And you know, until we get to that place, we never see anything. 
You know what it's like? I've used this before with you, but it's precious to me. Have you ever seen somebody looking like in a store window or looking in a glass? And you wonder, what's so intriguing? They're looking there. And you realize they're not looking in the window, they're just looking at the reflection in the, you know, in the glass. They're fixing their tie or checking their dress. That's how a lot of our relationships are with other people, isn't it? We're not looking through and seeing the other person. We're looking at the reflection. Hey, they seem to like me. You know, they, we, we're looking at that. We're not seeing the person. It's only when we see with God's eyes that we actually look through. You know the saying the world has, uh, love is blind, a lie. Love isn't blind. Love lets us see for the first time. When we're next to God and see like God, we've seen things we've never seen before. Suddenly we see that image that was invisible when we were too busy looking at ourselves. So in practical terms, how does that manifest itself? Look at some of the examples Jesus gave. On the Sermon on the Mount, he says, he says, you know what generosity's like? He says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You're completely unaware of this. And I love at the, uh, the judgment scene in Matthew 25. We all know the horrific part where he says, you know, cast out those who've not given him to drink and given him to eat. But look at the detail here about the good, the people who did all the right things. Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Now, here's the point. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? I want to stop there. You see, they weren't doing these things. They weren't aware of them because they loved the same people God loved. They did it for the same reason Jesus did it. They weren't looking for a reward. This is what Jesus says I have to do. They had the same love. They were doing them naturally out of love. That's why Paul says, basically, uh, love fulfills all the commandments. If we really see people as God sees them, we'll always do the right thing. We won't gossip about them. We won't steal from them. We won't abuse them. We won't take advantage of them. If we really see as God sees, we'll never. Sin becomes history. So our conclusion, our salvation has been given to us as a gift. We don't have to earn it. It's, uh, we don't have to earn God's favor. So again, what is the point of a Christian life if we've been saved? And we said it's more than not falling into sin. It's our response is, is looking, receiving God's gift and giving it back to him. That is the heart of the Christian life. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. God's greatest gift to us is that, like my allowance, letting my son be truly generous. God's greatest gift is he makes it possible. He's purified. He missed. The last time we were an offering holy and acceptable. We weren't under sin. Justified. We are now holy acceptable. We have something worthy to give God. And that's what we do. We give it to God. So how is that different? Expressed through good deeds, not as wage labor, but as a gift. Not as an employee, but as a volunteer, so to speak. The word volunteer comes our will. It's something we want to do. A labor of love. As we do this, we're transformed into the image of the one on the cross. That's what love looks like on the cross. Jesus was forgiving people, not after they said, well, what have we done, while they were still making fun of him, while they were still torturing, giving him vinegar when he was thirsty and had wounds. That's when he was making excuses for them and forgiving them. That's what love looks like. So what sets good works apart from those earning our salvation? It's the love. It's selflessness, looking for nothing in return. Now, this isn't something we can do. Paul says it's God is in the spirit. 
It's the spirit who works this, this transformation in us. So let's pray today for the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus told us he will never not answer that prayer. If we ask for the Holy Spirit, he will always give it to us. Let's ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit to work that transformation today, to begin that work today from glory to glory, to be more like Jesus. And we have a special moment we can do it. You know, during the Eucharistic prayer, we have something called the epiclesis. It's a praying for God to come down with the Holy Spirit and sanctify the bread and wine. What always comes after that? A prayer for our sanctification. There are two gifts. The gift of Jesus, and we join ourselves to that gift. So at that moment, let's pray in a special way. Heed uh, Paul's call. By the mercy of God, present yourselves as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship.